Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Tim Chen, the founder and CEO of NerdWallet. You've probably come across his site as you're researching a new credit card or some other financial product. Anyway, Tim worked in equity research out of college and then for a hedge fund before setting out to build what's now NerdWallet. Tim and I, we have a very open and honest conversation about his journey, the mistakes along the way, and what he would do differently if he had the chance. I hope you enjoy the conversation. NerdWallet, it's a seasoned startup. It's been around for a while. And as such, Tim's had the opportunity to learn a lot. They say that a startup can provide the environment for you to learn the most. I can tell you that while you're going through it, that it doesn't really feel like learning. It just feels like a constant struggle, uphill battle. But sure, when you have time to look back on it, like some quiet time with family at the end of the year here, yeah, I mean, you've just learned so, so much. For Tim, he's been able to identify some powerful knowledge along his journey, like what makes people trust a person or a company. I mean, if you can figure out that, I think you're on your way. Or the insights from dealing with customers, what they like, what they don't, how they engage. Combine that over a multi-year journey and the information, it just starts to compound. And if you're clever enough to be able to put it all together and follow the signals, then man, you can create something special. I just think about, uh, about my experience with PayClub. The problem we set out to solve at the beginning of our journey, it's pretty much the same as it is today. And that's about the only thing that's the same. I mean, what we've learned along the way has drastically changed almost every facet of our business, how we approach customers, investors, the market, everything. And that's how it goes. You don't know what you don't know. And the only way to discover it is to go out and get your hands dirty. And that's the reason why investors like to back seasoned founders like Tim, because they've just been through it before. All that I'm saying here is just be adaptable, be open to feedback from wherever it may come, but also be determined. And if in your heart, you know that something is right, don't let the feedback get to you and just keep pushing forward. Okay, this will be the last podcast of 2019. I hope that everyone has a safe and happy new year and is able to carve out some of that reflective time for yourself to think about what you're going to make happen in 2020 and really what an amazing year would look like for you. Okay, let's get into the interview. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. This is I've done this year my third podcast of the day, the first one in a quiet room. Yeah. So that's really nice. We'll get to have a better conversation than than all the others. Yeah. Um, founder of Nerd Wallet. What uh I mean that's that's the today job. What was it like? Where'd you go to school? I guess let's uh, let's start at college. Uh, college, okay. So I went to Stanford, and I majored in economics, and that has very little to do with what I'm doing today. But uh, yeah, it's a great, good. Did start. you did you grow up in uh, San Francisco? No, I grew up in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. And um, like, what kind of kid were you? Were, were like your parents entrepreneurial people work for a big company? Like, what, <laughs> like where did you like get this starting company stuff? No, I was. Uh, 
my everyone in my family is a computer scientist, so I'm the first uh, in my family to not do that. Um, but I've always been entrepreneurial as a kid. I was always coming up with these harebrained schemes for how to run a business. I think at one point my uh, cousin jokingly said, uh, "You're either going to end up in jail or very successful." <laughs> so I don't know if that's a common thing with entrepreneurs, but yeah, like I would, um, I would buy and sell magic cards and things like that. Growing sure. Up. Um, and then you get into Stanford. Was that your like your childhood dream? Um, not really. I I uh, I mean, I guess so. But um, I I really just had been following my sister around my whole life. So she went to Stanford. She went there, so it seemed like the path of least resistance. But in hindsight, yeah, it was a great place. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So you get there, and are you still like tinkering around entrepreneurial things? You're thinking I'm going to go like work for a big company. Like, what what happened when you got there? Yeah. So I I got really into investing. Um, or what I thought at the time was investing, which in hindsight was probably gambling, uh, day trading. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought I wanted to do something um, financially oriented. And, you know, I, like I went to college in 2000. So just in time to basically lose all of my right, money the during com. the crash. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I lost all my bar mitzvah money in the, in the <laughs> dot com. Oh. Yeah. And so I guess that was like my first hard financial lesson. But it's it's striking to me even today I'm still making mistakes the same way like you screw something up and then you realize oh that's why people do things a certain way um, so yeah like recently I uh, invested in one of those like peer to peer lending platforms and I didn't realize that you can't deduct the losses from your taxes after three thousand a year so um, it ended up being like a really bad investment that I'm still unwinding. Why can't you, why, why is that like part of the jobs act or something? Well, so no each, okay. So each security, you're basically buying like a personal loan or a right. piece of it, right? So each one counts as its own security. So your maximum deduction each year is something like 3000 bucks. Um, so if you invest in like one of these platforms and the loss rate is like 10% and you put in like a hundred thousand dollars, like you, you get you get taxed on everything you make and then you can't deduct anything you lose after huh. 3000 bucks which is atrocious but like you would never think about this right. unless you ran into the situation right and so hence a lot of the inspiration behind nerd well, as well or unless i'm fortunate enough to know someone like you and you right. say out don't like don't get into this right. um but yeah nerd nerd wallet. um okay so you're you're like starting to play around with uh, with investing in school and like do you do well do you, like you lose it all like what happens well in college no i did horribly i lost it all yeah. um i didn't realize that you know, there's this thing about like fundamentally understanding what the company was and buying a fractional share of it and thinking on a 20, 30 year time horizon. I think that's the only way to do it. Um, but yeah, I've gone the other way. Today, I still largely uh, index the market. So I buy S&P 500 ETFs. And, you know, as someone who came from a prior profession where I was paid to invest people's money, I think that's saying something, right? I worked at a hedge fund. Now I index the market. So right, okay. So first job out of school is hedge fund or or, or what? Um, so first job I went to an investment bank mm -hmm. and I was a what's called an equity research analyst. So right. I would advise mutual funds and people like that on whether to buy or sell stocks. You write those for those those research reports, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, your and Wall Street like, Oasis. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, and uh, and what uh, what industries were you covering? Um, so I was specialized in semiconductor capital equipment. So companies like Applied Materials, Lam Research, Tokyo Electron, nothing any consumer has ever heard of. Right. But they make all the equipment that goes into like Intel's factories or, you know, like Toshiba's factories or Samsung. Yeah, these non-sexy businesses are usually the ones that just make tons and tons of money, and right. the sexy ones that everyone's like, oh, glamorized about of like. Yeah, totally. Entertainment and tech. I mean, it's like. 
difficult. Um, so right. did you did you like that job? Did you like the industry? Like, what'd you take from that? I did. Um, if if I summed up everything I learned into like one or two sentences, it would be: um, some companies have sustainable competitive advantage, and some compete on price and basically just kill each other. And it, it kind of like, if you think about like all the tech giants today, there's reasons why they're not like competing on price anymore. They're basically, uh, there's like a word that people are really hesitant to use, but they're basically monopolies and they mm-hmm. pretend like they're not, right? And I think most businesses are either in that camp or they're just competing on price. Right. And so you were there writing these research reports and you started to see like these differences between companies that, that had like the real monopoly power and those that, those that didn't. Right. And, uh, and then did that translate into like an idea in your head of wanting to do something more or like just, Oh, I can start investing in these monopolistic companies and make a lot of money for myself. Like yeah. what were you thinking? Well, I, I actually spent most of my time um, shorting companies that looked like they had sustainable advantages, but really didn't. There might be like temporal issues uh, that people were incorrectly extrapolating, like a rosy future, but like, you know, they were going to get hammered on their next pricing negotiation or something like that. It, that wasn't really like the core of my inspiration for doing this, but it always stuck with me as something that, you know, had to really be careful of as I plotted out the future of the company, right? Because it's like building a business is like rock climbing. So it's like, what are you rock climbing towards? Are you rock climbing towards something sustainable or something where you're just going to be out of business in five years? Um, so yeah. But the inspiration for starting the company was my sister asked me for help finding a credit card. And I said, let me Google that for you. And was just super irritated by the results I got, which all felt like infomercials rather than helpful. Right. And, yeah. So there, then, there's a piece here in between the investment bank when you went, went, to, went to go do the hedge fund stuff, right? Yeah. And then so then you're you're actually uh, exercising your monopolistic, not shorting, buying. Right. That's what you're talking about. Okay. And right. then your sister says, I want to get a credit card and you Google that. and. Yeah. I mean, so I Googled it and I was like, wow, this is, this is not helpful. And then so I spent the weekend building a spreadsheet for her of all the cards from the biggest banks. There's only like six huge banks here um, that that – account for most of the cards. And she found it really helpful. And so did some of my friends. And I was like, well, that's silly. Like this should be a website because someone did the work. It should just be easy for everyone to access. And then like, you know, years later, the I'd summarize by saying the core insight there is if you are a consumer and you have choices, you don't want to spend the whole weekend building a spreadsheet, but you don't want to feel like a chump either. So like, what's the way to shortcut that so you can like make a decision and move, move on with your life. And people want to trust a third party to do that. And that's how we think about the service we offer. Right. Um, okay. So you're, you're toiling away at this hedge fund, buying and selling stocks and stuff. Yeah. And uh, your sister asked you to do this. And so you're like, boom, light bulb. Like this is like, I'm going to go do this business right away. Or like, I'm going to stay working at this hedge fund and do a little on the side. Like what was the transition? Oh, well, I got fired. You got it fired. Was, yeah. It was um, 2008. It's okay, kind of a so, rough yeah. year to be an investor. Yep. Um, but yeah, so I, I had time on my hands and I had always, um, had that entrepreneurial itch, but it was just so hard to like step away from the career and, and making money. It. And you're just like, this is your, what you do every day. Exactly. Right. That, that's difficult. Yeah. So it was like, it was such a blessing in hindsight, right. To yeah. have the, the space and time to do that. Well, looking back, it's so neat how that kind of works out. But in the middle of it, you're like, fuck, I got fired. I have no money. Like, what am I going to do? Yeah. And, um, but yeah, looking back, it's always it's always nice and clean, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the psychological part is the hardest part of being an entrepreneur, right? Because you're used to like rules and structure and achievement ladders and like 
pleasing other people. And then all of a sudden you're thrown into a world with no structure where you have to create your own meeting, your own, your own meeting, your own schedule, your own rules. Yep. And you have to have like this blind faith that it's going to create an outcome. It's pretty challenging. While the entire world and society is telling you, stop, no, don't, yeah. it won't work. And like, you're like, no, it, it will work. And like, no, 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 it won't work. You have to, you should, you should, you should stop. And then right. like, it's like, that separates the huge successes from the not ones are like the people that are able to, right. to, to just uh, stick with it. Yeah. It's tough when your mom's like, what are you doing? Everyone's and, like, what are you doing? <laughs> right. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. Um, especially like I went to business school and like I joined a startup now and like mm. everyone, all my friends are like, you know, working for Google and making lots of money. And, right. and it's like, you know, it's funny, like they're envious of what I have, like, oh, you're an entrepreneur and you're like changing, you're going to put a dent in the world and do something. And then I'm like, yeah, but like you're making lots of money. And right. like, I'm like, it, so it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's tough to, you're right. It's tough to find like what's going to be right. I mean, looking back, it always seems to fit into a nice little right. line, but when you're going through, it's difficult. Yeah. So yeah, what right. were, what were the early days? Um, what were the early days like when you, uh, when you got fired, you started ideating on, on what's now NerdWallet? Yeah. I mean, the early days, um, so it was, it started from a spreadsheet, right? So I basically turned the spreadsheet into a web app, which kind of looked like kayak for credit cards. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what I was really lacking at the time was a lot of understanding of like what consumers cared about. I was projecting my own bias onto the whole thing as a financial analyst. I just wanted the whole spreadsheet and I was like, leave me alone. Let me figure this out. Right. But I think for most consumers, they want, you know, they're like, there's a thousand options. They want to be asked like the two or three questions to help them narrow it down to three options. And then they want the power to choose based on what they need, right? So um, that's kind of like the core of what our product experience feels like today. And the other thing I realized was like, um, people don't really want to learn for the most part. I mean, I, I, there's definitely like super nerdy people who like want to dig in and understand the ins and outs of personal finance. I think for most people, it's like a just-in-time thing, right? It's like, okay, I just had a kid. What do I do? Right. Tell me what the best... Right. Is, and I just want to go do it. Like this is, right, this, exactly. I want to get back to, to living my, my life. That's exactly right. And that's where I, um, I think I really went a few vectors in the wrong direction early on, like trying to educate people, trying to be paternalistic, not really understanding what their needs were. Um, you know, one, one early thing I remember, right? Like, you know, the first personal loan comparison tool we were building, um, we sorted everything by interest rates. And then people were like, what's the monthly payment? I don't care about the interest rate. And the paternalistic part of me was like, that's that's ridiculous. Like, why wouldn't you care about the interest rate? But it's important to understand and dig into the context of why they care about the monthly payment, right? And so, I don't know. It's like things like that that have really uh, humbled me a lot, but also made our product more accessible to more people. Right. And I mean, what's implicit in this entire thing is is tr consumer trust. Right. People trusting that you're telling them the right thing and you're not biased. And like, so how did you like go about building a brand that is, and establishing that? Yeah. Well, I would, I, you know, I think a lot about what I call the trust equation. Um, I stole it from someone else. I don't remember who, maybe an exec coach or something, right? But whether you're talking about like a one-on-one, -on -one, like meeting a stranger or meeting a brand, it's kind of the same equation, which is kind of like, what is their um, consistency plus their competency divided by their motive, right? And so the, the motive part is like what sticks out the most in our industry because it's like, you know, the reason I didn't trust the results I was seeing on Google was because they felt like infomercials. Like the things they were recommending, there's no rationale behind them. I just assumed they had auctioned off all the spots, which right. is in reality what was generally happening. Um, and so we, we thought it was really important to have like editorial separation between the people who are making the reviews and the ratings and the actual business side. 
Because in the absence of that, you may start off okay, but it becomes like a slippery slope over time. Like when you have 50 or 100 product managers or content producers, right? Uh, so we, we had that separation today and that's made a big difference. The second big thing is like we grew up not paying for our traffic. Like we didn't buy a single visitor until maybe six or seven years in to our existence. And so we actually had the option of being consumer friendly. When you're paying $10 per visitor, you can't. You have to like you have to maximize monetization. Otherwise your business goes upside down. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, that was like a big advantage of being bootstrapped. So we just, we just focused really hard and had faith that this organic thing would play out in the long run. And, um, yeah, so that's how we grew up. Oh, we I love that. Because yeah. that's what banking is today. I mean, Chase spends $500 to acquire a customer. Yeah. And so right, they have right. to nickel and dime and overdrafts and this and that. And it's like, they don't have a choice. Yeah, they don't yeah. have a choice. And right. they, and they have to spend $60 just owning a customer for a year based on their footprint and branches. And it's like, well, that right. sucks. Like, what if I reimagined a bank from the very beginning and like it wouldn't have all those costs and things? Right. Like, could just build a delightful experience. Yeah. Well, the ch the challenge is like, you know, you think about like, take two restaurants in New York City, right? Say there's like a neighborhood restaurant. You can, it's kind of good value. You feel good after you eat there. It treats people well. So the reputation builds over time. Or there's another restaurant that's in Times Square where the rent is crazy, but you have to charge a lot. But then that's the only way you end up in Times Square. So both are sustainable and viable, like equilibriums for business, but they just yield, I think, different levels of consumer satisfaction. Yes, yeah. I agree. Okay, so um, I want to hear like more about like the early days of like what was like the the, the very first product at NerdWallet and like who were the yeah. people you hired and co-founders and and like how did they how did it like start to take hold? Yeah, I mean, I think it started with uh, basically what was Kayak for credit cards, mm -hmm. and then. Um, start realized we really had to get this organic traffic going. Otherwise we would never be able to, no one would know about us. Right. Like one of my first incorrect intuitions is if you build it, they will come totally not true. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, especially in such an acquisition driven like industry, like financial services. So started writing a lot of content um, to help people understand the different rewards cards out there. And then um, we got some early traction and then brought on um, co-founder and eventually our first employee, um, yeah, most of our first hires were actually off Craigslist, which, um, we got really lucky. Some of them worked out really well. Um, and so, yeah, we just slowly built organically from there. Right. And, and so how many years have, have you been doing this now? Uh, it's been a little over 10 years wow. at this point. And, yeah. you've, and you've built something real. And, um, uh, so like, where do you think it starts to go from here? I mean, are you satisfied? It's like, oh, let me just, and, 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 and what's the business model today? Yeah. So business model today, we're basically a matchmaker between consumers and banks, right? Um, and we we tend to be compensated like a bounty when we make a match. Um, there's a long way to go. Like if I, if I flip the problem on its head and I think about like where consumers still struggle today, like shopping has become a little bit easier because of the the marketplaces we've put up. Um, what's What's still really hard is knowing what you don't know. So, like, I actually yeah. think most of the economic loss from consumers is like not knowing they should refi a student loan or not knowing that they should get a higher yield savings account or like, you know, there's almost, there's a whole litany of things that they don't know they don't know. Um, I think the power behind what, you know, like all, all these people at this conference are doing and where we're really going is like building member profiles and then nudging them when they should be doing something smart, right? Mm -hmm. So, I think of that as like digital financial advisor. So I think we're going to make a lot of progress there in the next five or 10 years. Right. And then I think there's even like one step beyond that, it becomes 
like self-driving money, right? There's more and more automation as like those nudges become like more understood. Right. Just want to refinance. It'll save you X amount per month. Yes. Yeah. And you're pre-qualified and and all that stuff. Everything's already taken care of. Right. Yeah. yeah. That would be a a, a pleasant day. Yeah. And so my opinion is that the reason some people, um, the reason we're well positioned for this is we're not conflicted, right? Like it goes back to that trust equation, you know, divided by motive. So if you're trying to sell me your own products, then how do I know that you're actually giving me good advice? And so that's where we really try to be a neutral third party. And that's where we don't want to like take deposits and do our own loans and things like that. I mean, there is potential for conflict. I mean, like JP Morgan might pay you more than Chase or than a city will pay you for a bank. And so you might say, oh, like, well, let's, let's pump up that one. Right. But you're saying that, that you don't do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's definitely some aspect of that, but that's where the editorial separation is really important. And that's where like, you can't, you cannot do that if you're paying $10 per customer, right? But you can do that if you're getting your traffic organically, Mm -hmm. like you can be unbiased. So that's really something that, I don't know, we'll see how this industry plays out, but I think that's where we're So next time you get advice from from something on the internet, then go like go type it into Google and see like how much see if like where they are in, in their search and if they're paying up for a bunch of ads and stuff. Yeah. Uh, then maybe there's maybe there's something to think twice about. Well, I think it's shifting over time too, right? Because what ends up happening over the long run, like the way Google prices or the Google positions the ads, right? They're they're optimizing for revenue per search. So it's not just the bid, but it's actually like the bid times the click through rate. So as your brand gets stronger, your click-through rate on Google ads goes up and then the price of the click goes down. And therefore, like another equilibrium that you can have is you just have a trusted brand, but you pay less for your advertising, right? So that's our thesis. That's why we've been able to start advertising. Um, Well, uh, that's really great. And um, I guess guess I'll have two more questions. The the first one um, uh, about advice, you know, your... your, um, the people that listen to this podcast are you know, early on in their careers. They're trying to like carve out their their place in the in the world of like seeing what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing. You know, should I go work for a big company? Should I just go right. right off the bat and start a business? Like anything that you can like glean from from your career that that might be helpful. Yeah, I, I'd say I made a few mistakes. Right, like one when I started this company, I probably did it too early. I didn't have any sort of perception of what good looks like in a high functioning like consumer internet company. Right, just from the people like so i think like if i had gone and worked at a great consumer internet company for even 3 months right. or 6 months not only would i have met a lot of people that i could have poached i would have actually had a better mental models of what appropriate behavior and talent looks like so that really slowed me down um i'd say one of the positive things that really helped us out was when you're small and if you're doing like a media oriented business like us, you can really go after a particular niche that no one has time to go after that can actually be quite large, right? Um, and you can serve that niche really well and build up an audience that way. That's exactly what we did. We started with cards. It's a small part of our business right. today, but yeah. yeah. Well, that's what the internet is like built for. It's like right. super exactly. serving a niche audience. Right. And th- that's a great foothold to get started, right? Then you can like rock climb your way into other things. Yeah, that's so. great. Drive, the, drive that wedge. And then I guess the last thing is, you know, like I mentioned the listeners, is there anything that they can do to you that would provide value to you? And I was talking about providing value. Like don't just, you know, don't just send in resumes, like find a way to like provide value. So anything that, that listeners would do that would help you out? Yeah. I mean, I guess like um, we're always thinking about how to like partner with other companies to create you know, this like to, to make money just like as easy as possible. Right. And I think like the next five years, a lot of those things might be, um, membership driven experiences that help people like take some cognitive burden out of what they're doing, whether it's like 
optimizing their 401k or whatever it is, right? Like, I think there's a lot of really creative people out there that are going to solve this better than us. And I want to partner with them down the road. Okay, cool. Well, Tim, thanks so much for coming on. This was, this was great speaking with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay. Cool. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends, helping us grow and leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks. 